When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Monday Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com. We're going to review some Market Down Monday predictions. We did that earlier. Uh, we did it before the bowl where there's some things that related to the Heisman, to playoff teams, to that kind of thing, Ohio State All-Americans. Those things had been locked down. So we did those before the Peach Bowl. But now we are going to do statistical things that we had to wait to for the Ohio State season to finish. And when we make statistical predictions, you're always, I mean, it's different than the NFL where the regular season is regular season. I do think in college football, Nathan, they have to figure out a greater differentiation between the regular season and the postseason, especially in a 12-team playoff era. Like, I don't I don't know if, like, the statistical things do we want. It's why at the moment I think the Heisman should be after the end of the season because there's not enough of a dividing line. And there's so much of the postseason now that if you play 12 you because they count the conference championship games in the regular season but now they wouldn't count three or four playoff games i i think they need to figure out a greater dividing line and in the professional sports we understand it here's the regular season here's the postseason in college football where it's been the the history has been the regular season and then one bowl kind of maybe for some people it's it's there's more fluidity to it and i it makes it odd. But at the moment, we treat it as one season. Statistically, right, you say, who led the nation in rushing yards? Well, we're going to be in a playoff era where some guys might have 12 games and some guys might have 17 games. It's like, who led the nation in rushing yards? So they got to figure that out. But anyway, when we make our statistical predictions for Ohio State, you're taking into account, do you think they're playing 13 games? 14? Maybe 15. Are they in the Big Ten Championship game or not? Are they playing two playoff games? So, Nathan, we had to wait to see what happened. They only played 13 games, which is the fewest they can play. But that factors in. But now those stats are done. So we're going to do this. And I'm also making an announcement here that we have never made on Buckeye Talk before. Hold on to your boots. We're going to take a week off, which we have not done since we went to five days a week. We need a break. So... This is out on Monday. We probably won't be back until the next Tuesday, which will allow us to take a full week off and then come back on a week from now on Monday and record for Tuesday. So sometimes it's nice to be missed. So if you miss us, we apologize, but then that just means you love us. If something huge happens, maybe we'll duck in with a pod somewhere, but don't count on it. So just remember, back in the day, we used to do one a week, and you, has to, you used to have to wait a whole week for us all the time. Now, sometimes you don't even have to wait 24 hours. So just that's what we're going to do. 
And if if there's like other stuff, we'll jump in. And with that, enjoy this one. Maybe you listen to this one three or four times. Nathan, I'll hand it over to you. You are our market down Monday creator and commissioner. You invented this podcast and now you track this podcast. So I'm very curious to see how we did with our statistical predictions this season. I just want to say this would be a great time to have like a, um, what's it called? Like one of those discords that they were talking about. Cause we could like put it out. Somebody could start a thread, a post, however that works. I haven't really been on discord. Like, what is the best of Buckeye Talk? And what are your five favorite Buckeye Talk episodes? And then people can mm. go back and find those to fill in the void of the week that we're not going to be around. So we don't have that. I shouldn't even be speaking into existence, I guess, since it doesn't exist. But maybe you have your own. This is your opportunity. You can sit back and ponder. Uh, like, what are my – it's like when Johnny Carson used to go on vacation or whatever, and they would just show, like, best of Carson for a week. That's – just conjure your own best of Buckeye Talk. Think of your five favorite episodes. Save one per day. And go back yeah. and listen to those for the next week. That's a really good idea because as far as I know, there are um, like 1,100 to choose from. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> they're there. They're in your feed. Just go back. Just find them. Back. Just put and your stuff to work. In, yeah. Yeah, like it's funny. Like uh, – when you have old sitcoms on streaming now, like sitcoms used to do like clip shows where everybody would be like, hey, remember when? And then they just show old clips. And it's like, well, what? The idea now that you show, the, show old clips is like, I have access to every single episode at all times whenever I want it. Why would you have a show that is showing me old episodes? So, yes, we're not doing a best of Buckeye Talk clip show because you can do your own clip show from the 1150 that are sitting in your feed. Just scroll back until you find a headline that you're like, I don't remember that. That sounds good. And just delve in. Yeah. We are delving into history ourselves today, though, as Doug alluded to. Should we start? We should have talked about this beforehand. Should we just start with the we, – we went in order of like the big ticket items are kind of at the top, the big offensive items. Should we just start there and go right into our statistical predictions for the, the biggest stars on this team? They're more fun. They are more fun. And, Why and I, Quinn Ewers will lead, will lead Ohio <laughs> State to three national titles. That's a podcast that's probably back there. Yeah, they are more like, fun, but they're also – some of them yeah, are going to be – It's called the 2023 Prediction Podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> back. Yeah. I think the ones you should look for are the ones where we're the most wrong. Go back to find the headlines that are the most incorrect and listen to those. That'll be fun. Well, yeah. So we are the most wrong about some of these numbers that involve Ohio State's biggest stars. So let's just start at the top. C.J. Stroud passing yardage. Boy, this was nowhere <laughs> close. So we going back to what you were saying, Doug, we did a lot of math here. Like we don't just pull these numbers out of thin air. We sat down and we went, OK, what did they do last year? Could they be a little better this year? Do you have to apply it over more games than they played a year ago? In Stroud's case, he only played 12 games because he missed one as um a sophomore, a second year player. So if he was going to play 15, you would just extrapolate like, well, he could be just as good and then add another, you know, quarter of the season onto the end. And that could be a pretty big number, right? So I predicted 49, 15 passing yards. I was the conservative one. Uh, Steven predicted 53, 65, which would have been ninth in the history of college football. Doug predicted 56, 43, which would have been sixth in the history of college football. 
and he didn't even make the 3,700. Uh, 3,688 passing yards for C.J. Stroud this year, partially due to a loss of his biggest weapon to start the year, partially just due to the way that the season unfolded and the way that games unfolded. Uh, things like the Rose Bowl that allowed him to sort of inflate last year's title or uh, total, that didn't really replicate itself enough times to really push this number to where we thought it might go in 2022. I blame Ryan Day trying to be tough and run the ball too much. <laughs> That's my piece yeah, on that. Me too. If if he had averaged over 15 games what he did against Georgia, he would have thrown for 52-something. So mm-hmm. and that like 348 against Georgia times 15. I'm like 348 like is 52-20 is almost kind of normal. And I think we – frustrated some people sometimes like with that ah, forget the running the ball idea during the course of the season but then when it came down to it against the best team they played the best defense they played in the most important game that's what they did so I think in the end Nathan like my very 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 incorrect prediction was I expected closer to the Georgia game all year and I can't say that and then be like you know, all the points I make about indoors is a different world. It's like, well, they didn't play indoors the other games, Doug. Why did you why did you inflate the numbers like that? I just thought they'd chuck it around. And they didn't. So I know I was like very wrong on my strategic interpreta- interpretation of how they wanted to go about it. But how much do you think it changed when Jackson Smith and Jigba got hurt? Do you think if he doesn't get hurt, not only from the, the great skill and talent standpoint of you have a great player, but would they have then as a result s- strategically just thrown it much more, which would have led to bigger stats in the past game? I definitely I think, think it, it affected it. A yeah. combination of, yeah, I think it's a combination of Jackson getting hurt. Maybe they threw it. I mean, he threw it six less times per game, 36 times per game last year, 29.9 this year. So some of that is that. I think some of it is that defense was better, so you were in less games where you had to be chucking it around into the fourth quarter as much. Um, but I, I, Jackson Smith and Jigba were probably the biggest variable there where you lost that weapon where you had 90 million ways under the sun to get him the ball, throwing it to him, whether it was in the backfield or in the slot or however else, they were, and you lost that. And so maybe also, it's that plus, like, as I, I was joking when I said it, but I'm actually kind of serious. I think sometimes – they were so hell-bent on proving they could run the ball. They went away from the thing that was actually good. 36th in the nation in passing attempts, C.J. Stroud was. 36th in, in how many times? He threw it. Connor Basilick from Indiana played in 10 games and threw it more than C.J. Stroud did in 13. Now, granted, it's also a little thrown off because, you know, we decided to they decided to play football in a tornado against Northwestern, yeah. and so he only had seventy six yards in that game. Uh, the Rutgers game was pretty much kind of over, so he didn't throw it around that game. But still, it's the point's been proven here. They they, they threw it around a lot more often in twenty twenty one than they were willing to do in twenty two for various reasons. I think if Smith and Jigba had not gotten hurt, maybe they push four thousand yards. Maybe Stroud pushes for like four thousand yards, but he still wasn't going to come anywhere close to what we were predicting. I mean, you're right, Doug, that you if you take the Georgia game and extrapolate it, he would have gotten over five thousand. But like there was only one quarterback I think that averaged three hundred and forty eight yards a game. It was Michael Penix, who who averaged like twelve, thirteen more attempts per game than CJ Stroud did this past year. Like that I just the some of that isn't just 
style of play, some of that is like game dynamic. Like to average 348, you have to be playing, you either have to be throwing to such an extent early in the game or be playing a lot of games where you still have to be throwing the ball in the fourth quarter. I just don't know that the schedule the schedule was going to work out. That's the other factor. Like we weren't just picking number of games. We were trying to pick how many of these games is CJ Stroud going to have to play deep into the game? Like, is he going to have to do that against Wisconsin? Is he going to have to do that against Iowa? And then the other thing that happened, one of the reasons why he threw the ball less is because teams like Notre Dame picked a style of play that was specifically meant to reduce the number of times CJ Stroud had the ball in his hands. Like they came out, he played tough defense and then kind of played a very deliberate style of offense, you know, running the ball, using the clock, limiting Ohio State's possessions because they knew that they had to limit Ohio State's possessions because of the damage it could do with every possession. So a lot of factors that you couldn't necessarily, in retrospect, obviously that makes a lot of sense. Like why wouldn't teams do that? But you don't necessarily, I guess, predict based on that. It's one of those things that, that makes that it, you, you look back and say, okay, yeah, that, 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 is probably how that should have played out. Harder to see it going into the season. He also was not as accurate as he was last year. Seventy-one percent last season. He only had four games this year where he was above seventy. And that was Notre Dame, Penn State, Michigan State, and then Toledo. He's all he's got the thirty-eight percent game against Northwestern, the fifty-nine percent game against Rutgers, the sixty percent game against Maryland. So that that plays a role. I mean, when you're completing less passes and you're throwing the ball less, that's plus all these other things. It's, the passing game wasn't as crisp all the time the way it was in 21 i still though even though i was way 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 too high the fact that he went from 370 passing yards per game to 284 whatever taking everything into account i still am shocked by that 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 still seems kind of crazy to me and i'm not i still don't exactly know why it went that far right then i get it all right doug you went nuts but like for him to not have 4,000 passing yards in a year where you still had 2,000-yard receivers is kind of weird. Yeah, and that's, so, and, and that's I, where, I don't know. Yeah, and that's where I think missing Smith and Jigba becomes big because you would have had him and Marvin Harrison Jr. both staked out with big seasons. And then the Buka and William or um, Fleming kind of sharing a spot, still having a pretty productive season. Um, you know, I, I just think you would have seen – we would have pushed past 4,000. I just think that – I don't know how they would have got to 5,000. In retrospect, like, it's – man, I, this is the way that this season played out. That was going to be hard to do. I will say if you just – if you take out the Northwestern game, just throw it away. In the other 12 games, he averaged 301 passing yards per game. So that's how much a 76-yard game mm-hmm. in ridiculous win knocks down your average that you go from 301 to 284 based on one game. So really, he's still in normal conditions through for 300 yards per game. But I'm still surprised that that is 70 yards per game fewer than a year ago. Right. As long as we're talking about passing and receiving, let's go to the receiving numbers. This is the one that we were obviously the most off on, but this is one of those things that you just can't predict. Jackson Smith and Jigba. Um, Steven and I were right in the same ballpark, 1864 and 1870. Doug, you had him going over 2,000 yards. Again, very much in line with expecting Stroud to have those kind of numbers, was expecting C- uh, Jackson Smith and Jigba to have massive numbers and be potentially a Heisman Trophy candidate. And he ends up with 43 receiving yards for the 2022 season. And just of, of the all of the what ifs 
that this team has this season. Every team has some, but for Ohio State, they really piled up this year, and this was the primary one. It happens on opening night. One of those things that doesn't look as serious as it turned out to be in the moment, and it just never got right. The hamstring just never got right, and he ends up with fewer yards for his career, actually, 1,698, than any of us predicted for him to have individually just this season. It's unfortunate that we got one season of Jackson Smith the Jigba because 2020 was weird, so we never got to see the, the four freshmen do much of anything because it was only, what, seven games that year. So we got to see him toe-tap a touchdown catch, and then that's it. And then he got going late in 2021. So before – it was almost like out of nowhere, all of a sudden, this dude's the best receiver in college football, and then we get him for 60 snaps this season. So five-star wide receiver from Texas who came in here – where everybody knew this dude was getting the ball 12, 13, 14 times a game at his high school in Texas. He was supposed to be these KJ Hill on steroids, basically, is how they were going to use him. And we got one year of that because of COVID and injuries. So I guess we'll have to see if Brandon Ennis does that, right? Is that the next thing? Yes. Yeah, he is yeah. the next version of that where they're going to be as creative as possible with him. So knock on wood that we don't have any global pandemics and that he doesn't get abducted by aliens. It is like in the effort to just be right in predictions, maybe some years he'd be like, okay, uh, we all think this guy is going to be an all American. Doug, what's your prediction for this guy? And I'll be like 111 receiving yards abducted by aliens in week two. And then I'll be like, no, and he played 15 games and had 1800 yards. We're completely wrong. It's like, I don't know. How do you guess injuries? I will say I don't regret anything. No, no. But I predicted Jackson Smith and Jigba to have 2,000 receiving yards. The leading receiver in the country this year had 1,398. So he would have had to have 600 more receiving yards than anybody in the country did this year. So it was like, I don't. This was just not a like explosive year for wide receivers. Because we've had years where there have been some guys with multiple guys with over 1,500. Yeah, it is. It is remarkably low. Like I'm just looking back, like every other year, there's at least somebody with yeah. like 17, and a lot of times there's somebody with 18 or 1900. So this was a, this was a just a weird year for passing and receiving stats that there wasn't as much as like Tennessee, like kind of took took the the nation by storm with their passing attack. Part of the issue was like they had multiple receivers, and then their quarterback got hurt. Ohio State had multiple receivers, and they dialed their quarterback back. You know, Caleb Williams in USC, like, won the Heisman, but also, you know, wasn't maybe the peak of, like, not the Lincoln Riley at at his peak of what you expect from, you know, Baker Mayfield or Kyler Murray. So maybe we'll see huge numbers from Caleb Williams next year. But it was across the board. It was just – it was, like, the worst passing season probably in the last decade plus for college football as a whole. Only 31 people had 1,000 yards this year. That's the least amount that we've seen since 2017 when only 30 had it. So, yeah. Yeah. And, we and, went big in the wrong year. Yeah. But, it, there, yeah. but there's also just no way to predict that Jackson Smith is going to have more snaps than yards. Like, that's not, it, it, to, to your point, Doug, like nobody's going to show up on the season preview and make, like, we're, even though we are putting some math into it. And some guys are more injury prone than others, but A, he hadn't shown that. And B, you know, you're, it's more about just trying to figure out how many teams, how many games the team will play. And based off of that, it's it's yeah. hard to, to, to do it just based on whether you think a guy's going to have to bounce in and out of the lineup. So 
But I agree with Steven. Unfortunate that that was the best that we saw from Jackson Smith and Jigba. That that sophomore year is going to leave a, a lasting legacy here, and uh, we'll see where he goes from here. Let's take a break and come back. We'll pick up the rest of the receiving numbers and the rest of the offense here on Buckeye Talk. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We are back on Buckeye Talk looking back at our Market Down Monday predictions. We've done passing uh, what we were, how wrong we were on CJ Stroud. We've done how wrong we were on Jackson Smith and Jigba. Here's a couple that we were a little bit, we were more in line with. Marvin Harrison touchdowns. Some of us were, all of us predicted that he would have a big touchdown year, frankly. I had 11, Doug had 13, Steven went all the way out to 18. And the actual number with the two touchdowns he had in the first half against Georgia in the Peach Bowl playoff semifinal was 14. So Doug was one off. Didn't quite get to what Steven was predicting, but certainly showed himself to be exactly what I thought we expected, which was a very capable and dynamic red zone target. He also showed what he could do in the open field at times and to be just a a deep threat up the seam or and then especially to make the catches that no one else can make, which is what you need to do in order to be among the national leaders in touchdown catches. And uh, obviously no receiver in the country goes into next year with as much hype and as much following and as much expectations as Marvin Harrison Jr. Now that maybe that's a, a, a bad omen because Jackson Smith and Jigbo was in that position mm-hmm. a year ago at this time. But uh, barring a freak thing like that, I mean, we are on the po- we are poised for him to just to be able to sit back and really enjoy what could be a pretty impressive junior season for Harrison before he heads off to his future in the NFL. Yeah, fourth nationally in touchdowns. I'm gonna be honest with you, um, I'll live with not getting there because I predicted that over a 15 game season, and they didn't play in a Big Ten championship game, and they didn't reach the national championship game, and hit 14. And if they beat Georgia, I'm pretty sure he had, probably has two or three in the national championship game, especially now that we see how it played out. Quite frankly, I might have gone as far and been like, he has five touchdown catches against TCU because they can't cover anybody. So I'll live with it. I'm also that very is the scared. Most, that is the most Stephen Means thing ever, by the way, to be like, I'll live with it because <laughs> I'm just going to give myself the five imaginary touchdowns he would have had against TCU. So actually, I was exactly right. But uh, – yeah, Your point is fair. taken. Your point is taken. Yeah. I'm also very nervous. Part of me wants to predict it again next year, but part of me, as Nathan alluded to there, is very scared to predict any record-breaking things with these wide receivers because you'll predict it, and then he'll get abducted by aliens. But, yeah, I, I didn't get the number, um, so I'll take the L there. But the, the idea of what I thought Marvin Harrison could be this year, he lived up to all of that. Dibs on the 2,000-yard receiving season for Marvin Harrison Jr. <laughs> next year. Oh, okay, cool. 25 touchdown catches. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle McCord is just going to play catch with Marvin Harrison. 
We have learned nothing. Six thousand yards for Kyle McCord. Yeah, <laughs> we were doing this You're in back January. At Joe's. We we're doing this in January. We're going to come back in August and just be like, up oh, oh, through the roof again. <laughs> Record-setting performances. Oh, all it's fun. Yeah, I'm glad that. We, but, we, but listen, um, that was one that that yeah. of of a for a season that didn't play out. Well, it's, it's such a weird season because it they got they was. They we predicted them to be in the playoff. They thought they'd be in the playoff. They were in the playoff. They're right there, toe for toe with George, the best team in the country, to go to the national championship game. So all that played out the way we'd expect. It, it was just the route to get there was a little bit unexpected. But I, Harrison was one of the deviations from that. I, he we thought that what we saw from him last year, what we were hearing in the spring and in the preseason, he was set up to do this, and he went out and did it. Unanimous All American. Very, very, very rare in the history of Ohio State football. And again, not not to doom him, but uh, one of the things that I think Ohio State fans have to be the most excited about going into 2023 is seeing what he'll do for an encore. Who produces more? This is, again, on the receiving end. Who produces more, Julian Fleming or Emeka Abuka? I was, at the time, had been leaning towards Julian Fleming, all along, but Ibuka, with the way he was getting talked about in preseason camp, had pushed me to change my mind on that, and we were actually unanimous picking Ibuka, and that is what happened. Let me get the exact stats here. Emeka Ibuka went over 1,000 yards, uh, 74 catches, 1,151 yards, and 10 touchdowns. That's like borderline All-American season. I think he made some second-team All-American notice. Julian Fleming... 34 catches, 533 yards, six touchdowns. So still very productive. That's, I think, what we thought he was going to maybe do or maybe each of them could do as the sharing the third receiver job behind Smith and Jigba and Harrison. And instead, that just became he, – he had that job to himself, and then some of this spillover went to Kate Stover. I do think that if Jackson Smith had remained – Jackson Smith and Jigba had remained healthy – Mecca still would have played significantly more than Julian. Is that still? I think we sort yeah. of saw that in Notre Dame, right? Yeah, I, I think it would have well, reached the point where it just been Mecca's the Z, Marvin's the X, and Jackson's the, the H at some point because Mecca was just too explosive of an athlete in comparison to what Julian Fleming was. And I, I mean, Marvin Harrison was so good this year that it very much overshadowed the fact that Mecca Book is not that far behind him when it comes to statistical numbers. Mecca Ibuka had the fifth best receiving season in the history of Ohio yeah. State football. It is the quietest yes. fifth best receiving season in the history of Ohio State football you would ever have. It is. You look down this list, and good job by Ohio State for already updating it on their website. Jackson Smith and Jigba last year is one. David Boston in 1998 is two. Terry Glenn in 1995 is three. Marvin Harrison Jr. this year is four. Mecca Ibuka this year is five. Chris Carter in, two th- in 1986 is six. So Puka has more receiving yards in the season than Chris Carter ever did. Like Nathan, like I think you could, I think you could trivia. That's like a great trivia question. Name the five best individual receiving seasons in Ohio State history, and two of them are both in 2022. I just don't think we thought as good as Emeka was. Did we think of of him in that way during the course of this season? Um. Probably not. It, he was definitely overshadowed by just how I'm trying to think of what the best word to use, like flamboyant's not the right word, but just how like um, electric Marvin Harrison Jr. is. And Ibuka was a little bit more like workmanlike or 
just just a it was just a solid performance that showed up every week. Fleming did miss the first two games actually, so that's what opened the door for Ibuka to get started mm. the way he did. Um, and, and Fleming to do what he did in eleven games. I mean, again, that's still good production. But Ibuka, I thought the separation had started to happen before that. Like we were hearing the buzz as much as they were excited about, especially the coaching staff, like, Oh, Julian Fleming, iron Buckeye. Like he really came along, like he's doing some things. This is going to be the year. But when you asked about or heard about like who was actually like commanding attention with their play and it was happening in front of our eyes a couple of times too, in preseason camp or the spring where Ibuka would do something and you'd be like, Oh, that was a thing, right? That was, that was something nifty. And you start to notice that enough to where you're like, okay, this might be, he might be able to do some things that the average guy can't do out on the field. And uh, the season I thought bore that out. And, and again, all the weapons that this, that you're going to take in the next year for whoever wins this starting quarterback job. And I wonder if, if like comma court, every time we say that, does he like cringe a little bit or does he accept that it's a full competition? I don't know, but like uh, whoever does win this job, like, to think that your number two receiver is coming off the fifth best season in Ohio state history is comforting. I would think exciting for that guy. I thought Mecca. Yeah. Just steady diet every single week, but Mecca Ibuka was the re is the reason why Ohio state was able to do what it was doing to Georgia before Marvin Harrison got hurt because it's one thing that it's, it's having one guy. It's having that second guy who can be just as dynamic that you had to worry about. And that's what made that so special. Um, but it was just you didn't it. Unlike what we've seen with guys like Marvin Harrison, Jackson Smith, the Jigba, even Garrett Wilson, where it's just kind of in your face. Mecca's was a lot more like Chris Olave's was in twenty twenty one, where like Chris didn't have a thousand yards. We had thirteen touchdowns and almost had a thousand yards, and it was almost like after the fact because it's not nearly as flashy as what the other guys are doing. And they both should wind up if they're healthy among the top 10 all-time leading receivers in Ohio State history. And again, I guess this is not a shock mm-hmm. because we, for their first 100 years, Ohio State didn't throw the ball. But like that's that's what we're talking about here. You know, in that this is – I don't know. We have a whole offseason to look this up, Nathan. How many times in the history of college football has a team returned two 1,000-yard receivers and had them both come back? I can't imagine it's very often. Uh, not very often and certainly not in Ohio State history, that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, I think, again, it's it's good news for whoever wins this job and good news for this offense in 2023. This next one is uh, sponsored by John Deere. It's the Cade Stover receptions prediction. Uh, Jeremy Ruckert had had 26 hmm. in 2021, so we're kind of using that. Cade Stover only had five in 2021. So based on that, And what we knew about this receiving core, which was at the time we made this prediction, still going to have Jackson Smith and Jigba in it. I predicted 12 catches for Cade Stover. Doug and Steven both predicted 22. And the true answer was to take my prediction and either Doug and Steven's prediction and add them together. And it still wouldn't have been enough. He had 36 receptions. And that's only getting one against Georgia before he got hurt and uh, hurt his back and had to leave the game just one of the revelations of the season and and looking back on it did, did smith and jigba's absence affect this probably um did other factors maybe things with the running game affect this maybe but it was also you know what for whatever reason the 
Stroud Stover connection. Uh, and it's only again like three receptions a game. It's not like he's getting targeted like Travis Kelsey or whatever out there. But it it adds up, and he had a really productive year. And there were a couple times where he had interview opportunities where he made some kind of like snide sideways comments about letting us know that he knew that he wasn't expected to do as very much in 2022 from a statistical standpoint anyway. And he surpassed that in big ways. Kate Stover's season just makes me think about what Jelani Thurman might be in 2024 and 2025, because this is the most pro style passing approach that we've seen in the sense of you've got two main guys as your receivers and then your third guys typically kind of around the same number as what the tight end is. And that's what this year was. Now, I'm saying this also understanding that Julian Fleming missed two games, but Julian Fleming had also started to fall off in production in the late half of the season. And so I do wonder is, I don't know, are we are we actually going to live in a world where a tight end having 30 catches, if it's the right tight end, is what we can expect at Ohio State going forward? Or is this just a one-off because of all these factors that came into play? So Cade Stover averaged 47 receiving yards per game in the first four games and averaged um, had 12 catches in those first four games. Yep. And I know like he established himself as a reliable guy, as a guy who could make plays. And then they were like, okay. So I do think they are open. They're, there's the philosophy, right? This is how your offense works. There's what you want to do schematically and what you want to do philosophically. And then there's what happens when you give guys a shot and what they do with it. And the, when they started to throw him the ball, he started to do things. And so then mm-hmm. they were not afraid to lean into it. So he established that in the first month. And then you get to the Penn State game and he has six catches for 78 yards, right? And that's that's because by then they knew they could rely on him. And so they're open to that. And as much, you know, there were times in in Jeremy Ruckert's last year here where they threw him the ball a couple times and like he had a drop here or there or whatever. And it's not, it wasn't bad performance, but Cade Stover, like, maximized almost everything right to the point where like the fourth down throw against Michigan. It's like, it's not exactly a do or die play, but like that was a huge play in the Michigan game, which is probably mm-hmm. a little bit too cute. And CJ was 70% accurate on the throw when he needed to be a hundred percent accurate. And it kind of hit Cade in the hand, but it was a tough catch, but you're throwing a Cade Stover there, right? It's like, what? Like that idea where we were in the preseason, Nathan. And it's like, Hey, who do you think they're going to throw to on a uh, fourth and one? In the Michigan game, be like, what? Cade Stover? But that's that's who he established. So all credit to him for showing himself as a guy who could be relied upon. And I think his role could grow next year. And I think I am a thousand percent in agreement on Jelani Thurman. I'm very excited about what the possibilities could be with him. But then when you get your shot early, you gotta you gotta do it because you kn- they know, well, if we throw that to Marvin, right? It's probably gonna go pretty well. If we throw it to Emeka, probably going to go pretty well. So you're, we're not, we can't give you too many chances if you don't take advantage of them. But if you do take advantage, I think this year showed they will throw to the tight end. Yeah, Stover's production also benefited from something that we didn't necessarily predict either. We might have predicted the opposite, which was um, Trevor Henderson was used more as a receiver out of the backfield in 2021 than he ended up being this past season. And I think a lot of those receptions ended up going to Stover as a result. Do, do they need to tell Kate Stover not to jump over dudes quite so much? Because I feel like it's he keeps getting banged up directly from that. I don't know how many of them are 
there were a couple of them where he just got flipped on his back while he was trying to catch it. I don't. He might not have also just been completely healthy heading into the Georgia game, so one wasn't. thing up was going to end up in what it ended up. Right. So it was it all it, whether it was him jumping over somebody or just taking a bad hit. That seemed like it was always in play for for that to happen to Cage over. But I don't know. It also could just be like the new CJ Stroud needs to learn how to uh, uh, slide. Maybe just Cage over needs to learn how to juke and stop trying to jump over everybody. What 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 exactly happened on the play where he got hurt? I can't remember. He, he was he trying to jump over a tackler, or like yeah. the hip area. Yeah, yeah. He landed, keeps landing on his back, his lower back, his upper back, and yeah. he gets into the ear, and and he has back issues. And uh, some of that is just you're playing football and you get banged up. And he was the one who said that uh, himself. But I just wonder if there's a better. Um, approach there to try to make sure that he has the longevity he needs. Cause even though they're going to return other guys in that room that we think could be better, Joe, a healthy Joe Royer for a full season could be better. G Scott, uh, another year of development in the, just the athletic baseline that he has could be better. Bennett Christian coming along. Maybe like there could be some better play the rest of that room. Stover's still by far the best, most productive tight end in that room, the most reliable tight end in that room. And you want him for as many games as possible. I do think hurdle culture in football is out of control, and yep. I'm not joking yep. at no, all. No, that's why I brought it up. I, yeah. I really, I want to, I want to ask coaches about this. Are they? Are you now coached? If tacklers are going low, are you coached to hurdle them? Because I'm at the point where I think I would forbid my players from hurdling. You can run through the guy, or you can run around the guy. You are not allowed to go over him. Because even though, like, the back is the least of your problems. You can't have guys falling on their head because they're getting up in the air and then getting flipped. It's, I don't know how this happened, but it's crazy because, it, and it's like with anything, because, like, one out of every 20 times, out of every 20 times, it works spectacularly. It's like posterizing the guy and then you're on Sports Center because you get a clean hurdle over the guy and then you run 30 more yards. Most of the time, it either doesn't matter because, like, you jump and they clip your ankle and you get an extra half yard, or it fails spectacularly that you get flipped on your head. And you know what? If you had put a spin move on the guy or lower your shoulder and try to go through him, you would have gotten more yards. I don't know where this came from. So if it's a teaching point, all right, guys, here we go. We're going to work on hurdling defenders. Maybe I'm missing it. I don't know. But I think it's nuts. It's stupid. I don't understand why I understand why Zeke used to do it because he also used to be a hurdler, so he would actually do it the right way. But I think a lot of it is open field tackling. You see safeties a lot of times try to get low. You think you can get over them, but you're right. It, it works once every blue moon, and the other times, at best, you get over them, but then you end up out of bounds anyway. So you didn't really accomplish anything. I think more often than not, you see at least one hurdle in a game now, college yeah. or NFL. And I, I don't think it's good. Yeah, well, yeah, right. That's better said. Attempted hurdle. Yeah, successful hurdle, not that often. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, there, there obviously is. There's something instinctual about it. Here comes a guy. He's going low. I'm going to jump over him. But part of coaching is like beating the instinct out of guys. Like, hey, your instinct, right? It's like your instinct is to do this. But your instinct is wrong. We're te- Teach yourself and we're teaching you to do this. I'll put it on my list of things to ask during spring football. Hurdle yeah. culture. I, Boo. I do think it is more instinctive, but it also is also something that I think you could coach out of players if if you were so 
inclined. Uh, let's go over to the rushing side where uh, this guy we thought was probably going to hurdle some more people in 2022, Trevion Henderson. He had uh, 1,248 yards as a freshman rushing in 2021. Our predictions were kind of all in the same ballpark. Steven, 1,400. Doug, 1,500. I don't know how you guys come up with to the dot even numbers. Mine was 1,489. He only got to 571, and he was stuck there at the end of the regular season because uh, he had a significant foot injury that involved required surgery, and he missed the playoff game. And so this goes on the pile of what ifs. It was, you know, an encouraging start in some ways, and he definitely had some big games along the way. But the the foot injury that happened relatively early just never healed, just never got right, obviously, to, to where they had to do surgery on it after the season. And it's still one of the big question marks going into next year is, you know, can he regain that form that he flashed as a freshman? And can he and Mayan Williams both find the health and stay on the field consistently? And what does that mean for this offense? And will it mean more for this offense next year? Because you don't have CJ Stroud at quarterback. At least we don't think that they have CJ Stroud at quarterback. I mean, we know they won't literally have CJ Stroud, but whether you have that performance at quarterback remains to be seen. But we, you, those two running backs mean more to this offense in 2023. A couple no. of interesting things. No, they won't. Because you still have Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Buka. you got to throw the ball next. If they think they're going to come out and run next year, they're going to torpedo their oh, season. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. We, I mean, we don't even know who's blocking these guys yet. Throw the ball. That's Once again, factor, throw the yeah. ball. Uh, we're going to get shirts that say, throw the ball, Buckeye talk. But <laughs> a couple, couple interesting things here. Trey Sermon in eight games had 870 yards. That's more than any running back had this year in a full season. And that's, that's more of a, a – Brian Williams obviously led with 825, but that's a testament to what, what Trey Turman was doing at the end of the year, but also the amount of musical chairs we saw with this running back room. And then if you even go further back than that, the last time in a full season that Ohio State didn't have a 1,000-yard rusher was in 2011 when Braxton Miller led the way with 715. So they had five different guys who they used as a primary running back yep. different times this year, obviously, right? Trayvon Henderson, Mayan Williams, Dallin Hayden, Xavier Johnson, and Chip Trainum. If you add their rushing stats together, they ran for 2,187 yards. So if you think of that as, okay, in a normal healthy year, maybe you give 1,500 to the lead guy and 600 to the backup, and there's your 2187 roughly right so i don't think we were incredibly off like we were so off on the passing game that's part of it too it's like so we thought jackson's i thought jackson's big and jig was going to catch 2000 cj was going to throw for 5500 and they were still going to have a 1500 yard running back were they going to gain 900 yards every game but like the run game was there it was just the injuries forced them to not rely on one guy but 2187 from like primary backs, it's just the injuries kept them from having a thousand yard guy. So I'll be very curious what we what will we predict next season for Mayan Williams and right. Travion Henderson rushing yards? No, I think it'll be nine hundred and nine hundred. Like, I what will it be? Yeah, I, very inclined to. Somebody maybe has 1,100 and the other person has like 850. 
But that's in a world. I mean, we're not. I mean, we're, that's also like guys stay healthy. I mean, they were really adamant that Evan Pryor was going to be a part of this mix if he hadn't have gotten hurt. Dallin Hayden had showed you some things. There's this is a a we know who the best guys talent are wise just because of what we've seen in flashes. But there are a lot of guys who got opportunities and showed that they probably should play. And so I think it's going to be an interesting spring for a couple of guys when you've got a room full of guys who feel like that. No, it's it's a crowded room, man. And Mayan Williams has already announced he is coming back. Trayvon Henderson said that in conversations at, at media day that he plans to be back. So now you've got, you know, prior coming off of injury, don't know how healthy he'll be for the spring. So where does his role fit in? Dallin Hayden showed he's capable of more and can be trusted. But where are the reps for him? Uh, is train him a running back now? Because it doesn't necessarily seem like they need him at linebacker, although there are some decisions still to be made at linebacker uh, as, as we're recording this. Um, and then, then Xavier like Johnson has announced he's coming back. But even though he's primarily a receiver, they like what they got out of him at times in the running game and might try to, to fix, you know, uh, mix him in. So I, I don't know. As a team, Ohio State still 5.37 yards per carry. That ranked 11th nationally. I mean, that's the neighborhood that they want to be in as far as just being like per carry productive. I think that's more important than the volume of carries for them. And so they were in a weird way, got to, again, got to where they probably wanted to be, just couldn't keep the right guys healthy at the right times. So we do have to be careful with this. And and, and there are guys with upside in that room. But again, I was just, I didn't even know what his stats were. Just watching the, uh, Alabama, Kansas State, Sugar Bowl. And and this guy, I mean, he was really good all year. But watching uh, Jameer Gibbs, who only ran for 926 yards, watching Jameer Gibbs in that game, just a few of the of the gains he had, and he only ran 15 times for 76, 5.1 yards per carry. So maybe I just caught him on a couple of spectacular plays. But I don't know. I don't know that they have anybody in that room, even Travion at his best as a true freshman. When he was a true freshman, he hadn't played his senior year of high school. Some of his best stuff he did, the most spectacular stuff was in the screen game, right? Gets Minnesota in the open, that kind of thing, out of the box. Do they have anybody in that room when they hand them the ball, they can do things like J.K. Dobbins or Ezekiel Elliott did at their best, at their peak. And so they have a bunch of solid guys. But if you have a guy who can turn, uh, it's not blocked up, uh, there's nothing there, whoops, there he goes. Like, I don't know if they have that guy in that room. When it's blocked up, they have guys who can take advantage of it. Travion hitting that hole against Penn State and running for the go-ahead touchdown. It was blocked up, right? Mayan. Mayan ran through the guy at Northwestern. That's an example of that for sure. Ran through tackles at Northwestern. Maybe Mayan does it better than anybody. But I think that we have not seen, like, the upside from anybody in that room that would echo the best of the best at Ohio State in the run game. Ezekiel Elliott, J.K. Dobbins, Beanie Wells, that kind of thing, even the best of Carlos Hyde. And that still is the level, that's still the expectation. So great depth was developed. Who's your dude? But who's the guy who's going to be, who's the Marvin Harrison Jr. of the running back room? But I think that's the question is, have we even seen the best of Trevion Henderson? That, what he did as a freshman yeah. made was especially impressive when you factor in that he had been away from football for a year. And then with the foot this year, it was just never right. It was never 
not that he was like blowing them off the field before the injury happened, but it happened early enough that it affected the rest of his season. So what if he has a whole off season to get healthy, get stronger, get whatever, and and come in and 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 work on those vision things and and things that Tony Alford will certainly have him uh, trying to fix, then do we see the better version of him finally show up this third year? It, the question you're asking is is absolutely fair. But I, I do wonder about him, and it may be one of those guys that we assume the better thing is coming until he's gone, and it didn't ever really show up. That's happened before, too. But I do wonder if like just circumstances have kept us from seeing the best version of him. I think we've maybe seen the best version of Mayan Williams. I'm not trying to, to knock him when I say that. I think he has been able to put it on the field. I don't know that Trevian Henderson, all the circumstances have lined up for him yet. Yeah, especially in the games that we're talking about here. When you say who's the dude, like he, I mean, Trayvon hasn't played in the playoff game yet. And healthy Trayvon Henderson, we've seen in one game in his career, I think, against a quality team, and that was Penn State last year when he had 28 carries for 152 yards. But he was just their workhorse, and he had some freshman mistakes, like he had the, the false start. But for the most part, I thought that was a really good day from him. He got hurt and nicked up late in the season, and then the, the Michigan game played out the way it did. They just kind of stopped running the ball after a while against Utah, but he was also hurt. And then this year, outside of that blocked up perfectly, just go run fast play, is just, you know, he wasn't really healthy for the rest of the season. So if we do get a fully healthy Travion Henderson in November, when they're playing Penn State, when they're playing Michigan, maybe when they get into a playoff situation in December, what does that look like for a former five-star recruit? Because we've seen the flashes. We just haven't had a chance to see it against teams where it actually matters. I also go have to finish. I have to go finish my column on why Xavier Johnson is Ohio State's best running back. So I got to work on that too. So eagerly awaiting that. Uh, also, from the running game, we had the question: Who produces more, Mayan Williams or Evan Pryor? This was obviously something that we discussed prior to Evan Pryor's season-ending injury that occurred in preseason camp. So Mayan Williams won this. There's not really much to discuss in terms of that comparison. But Mayan Williams led this team in rushing. He was one of the best rushers in the Big Ten. I think he finished third in both touchdowns and yards per carry. Like Doug, is this one of the more unlikely Ohio State running champions in your tenure here? Oh, yeah. No, I think for sure. The most unheralded guy, probably. I mean, I'm trying to go back to like the Dan Heron, Brandon Sane days. Um, but But usually, you know, Usually there's a guy. Carlos Hyde was not like off the radar, but Carlos Hyde became a better back, I think, than I anticipated that he would ever be. But, you know, again, it's not every year, but you can you can really get used to Beanie Wells, Ezekiel Elliott, J.K. Dobbins. And again, that's in like an 18-year span, and it's like three names, but that's high-level stuff. But I think that what Mayan did for them. I mean, it's one of those things you think about what if they didn't have Mayan Williams, right? That's like, how do you evaluate a guy? What if you didn't have him? Well, the way things went this year, if they didn't have Mayan Williams, they would have been in trouble. So he was really good for them when they needed him and better than I ever thought he would be. And you, and again, it's one of these things like the Stetson Bennett example is, is the, the biggest one, but the whole thing with Stetson Bennett is Georgia didn't think he could be their quarterback, Mm -hmm. right? Until August, I don't think Ohio State thought Mayan Williams could be this kind of guy for them. It's not like, oh, you guys are haters on Mayan Williams. It's like the the way they were talking in preseason camp was, hey, this guy is showing us something new. 
He did some stuff this summer. He got himself ready. This is a different Mayan Williams. And then that's the Mayan Williams who led Ohio State in rushing. A year ago, that Mayan Williams didn't exist. So if we had doubts, they had doubts. So all credit to Mayan Williams for showing up and whatever, not proving people wrong, but just like being a really good football player and really valuable for how this season unfolded. Yeah, they. I mean, we we spent a lot of this time talking about is Evan Pryor going to surpass Mayan Williams because top 100 recruit year two, maybe he's ready to go. And then Mayan Williams showed up in a lot better shape in the fall than he did in, in the spring. So that changed everybody. And so it, be, it went from, is Evan Pryor going to pass Mayan Williams and this is going to be the Trayvon Henderson, Evan Pryor show to, oh, this might be a shared case of the running back situation where they've got a one-two punch with Mayan Williams and Trayvon Henderson. And then Mayan, when he was healthy, showed a lot of the stuff that they were talking about in fall camp. I can't imagine what Evan Pryor thought watching this season unfold because you saw like what Donovan, what Donovan Edwards did for Michigan when Blake Corum got hurt and Evan Pryor, like, are you kidding? Like who we have, we have no talking about guys that we don't know yet. We have no, I just listed five guys who at various times were the primary ball carrier for Mm -hmm. Ohio state. And that doesn't include Evan Pryor, but like there's a world where it's like, Oh, Trevion Henderson got hurt. It's like, Oh, Evan Pryor runs for a hundred. He's a hundred yard rusher. Evan Pryor's like second team All Big Ten. That's not him. Like he must. He obviously you're frustrated when you get hurt, but there was such opportunity in the running back room, and a guy who might have been poised to take it was the first one hurt. I think it might. He's probably looking at. I mean, he's cheering for his teammates. But Dallin Hayden got the ball 111 times this year, and he had some quality moments. That Maryland game was very good, and we were probably we we're all wondering why he wasn't the starting back against Michigan when it was clear that Mayan couldn't go. Five yards per carry. Trayvon Henderson, 5.3 yards per carry. Mayan Williams, 6.4 yards per carry. Given the way this season played out, I wonder what Evan Pryor would have done with those 111 carries. Because he flashed a little bit in the spring game. Yeah. No, I wonder too. So add that to the mix. Yeah. So. Yeah, the what if started before the season did for this team this year. One last thing that was sort of offense related, really more special teams. Emeka Abuka touchdown returns. We set the over-under at 0.5. Steven and I picked him to go over it. Doug picked him not to get a touchdown return this year, which he did not do. Fun fun to think about, but ultimately not a, a critical development for this team, really. To be fair, he had one kick return, and then they took him off, and they put Chip Traver back there. Yep. And then they put Xavier Johnson back there. Right. So it's not – I mean, you can't take it back if you don't run it. I'm going to say it now, and I'm going to say it again this summer, because I'm going to stay on this. Brandon Ennis takes a kick return back for a touchdown. They put Emeka back there as a true freshman. Why not put in Brandon Ennis back there? And I'm going to say this now. I don't I care about returns anymore. <laughs> <laughs> They're meaningless. I think they are. Uh, the game has changed. Yeah. There was a time when I was in all, all in on this, too. The game has changed. <laughs> kickoff returns don't matter anymore. They don't no. want them to matter. They may as well just eliminate kickoffs and just have everybody start on the 25. And the punt return game with the way Ohio State plays offense, they mostly just want you to catch it so the offense can get on the field. So, like, I don't care. Well said. Let's take our break there. We're going to come back and talk about <laughs> our defensive predictions for 2022 and what happened here on Buckeye Talk. All right, we're wrapping things up with our defensive statistical predictions and how close we came and in some cases did not come. Leading tackler, 
My prediction was Steel Chambers with 112. I was roundly criticized, I believe, for that prediction, both in terms of, oh, yes. of uh, yeah. especially for the, the number of tackles. Um, Doug and Steven both picked Ronnie Hickman with 80 and 85 tackles, respectively. So I'm going to, I get like almost like, like Steven, Steven takes credit for some things that are a little outlandish. I'm not going to like take credit no, for this. No, no, no. I'm not taking credit for it. This is my point. This is my not point. Even the same person. Yeah. Well, again, I'm just going by the Steven means model, but I'm saying I'm not going that far. Tommy Eichenberg led this team in tackles with 120. So it was a linebacker and it was someone who got even more than 112 that I predicted. But at the time, again, one of those things where we're sort of basing on what we saw last year, by the way, Ronnie Hickman was fourth with 53 tackles, but who he himself said early this year, it's a good thing. I'm not leading this team in tackles. It shows you that this defense is better that we didn't know exactly. We thought Tommy Eichenberg was going to have a big role in this defense. We didn't know exactly what it was going to look like yet. We didn't know that they were going to have him slamming downhill the way that they did. And, and Jim Knowles effectively took, I thought, both of these linebackers and made them more productive players in this defense and weapons in this defense. And some of the improvements that you saw from the rest of the defense centered around just getting better play from that position, especially against the run. And Steel Chambers was second. Take your victory lap on. He actually did finish second in tackles yeah, ahead of Ronnie Hickman. Right. Yeah. Uh, the the idea, what we questioned whether Steel Chambers was even going to be a full-time linebacker, I think was part of our criticism of like Steel mm-hmm. Chambers. It's like, are we even sure that like someone's not going to take time from him? Yeah. And Tommy Eichenberg and Steel Chambers didn't come off the field the whole year. And their two starting linebackers were their two leading tacklers. So that idea that, you know, in a quote safety driven defense, you don't actually want the safeties making the tackles because that's a bad sign. I thought Hickman would be more involved, like near the line of scrimmage. He had fewer tackles than Lathan Ransom. He wound up just playing a lot of deep safety mm-hmm. and they weren't having as many plays break and having him having to chase people down. So um so your analysis of like the general idea of it, Nathan, positionally, and then that Steel Chambers was gonna be a 100% every down player for this team. You do. You do. You're, you, you were much more on this idea than Steven and I were. Yeah. Much, my respect to that. And even with that, it's, he wasn't the first couple of weeks. It was still kind of a shared thing with him and Cody Simon. And then like week four, he locked it down and took all the snaps. So that's even more impressive. So yes, kudos to you for that one. Tommy Eichenberg having 120 tackles. That, <laughs> he had more tackles than Raekwon McMillan had in the 2015 season when Raekwon McMillan was like, all Big Ten, all American level type five star recruit. I don't. That's he. We thought the Rose Bowl was a one off because of the team they were playing, and it ended up just being a foreshadow for what Tommy Eichenberg's senior year was going to look like. Well, and it wasn't retro junior. Yeah, it wasn't just the team they were playing. It was that Cody Simon didn't play in that game, and we had questions whether yeah. it was Tommy Eichenberg's job 100 percent as well. And it turned out, as you point out, it was. Uh, Simon, who shared some work with Steel Chambers more than than Tommy Eichenberg this year. Listen, Tommy Eichenberg's rise to become a this is I don't know if this is a real term, but I'll go ahead and use it. Like unanimous second team All American, which I think he might have been. I think he might have been second team All American on, if not all five of the major lists, then like four of them. Just a, a great season by Tommy Eichenberg in a lot of ways. Um, and we saw, you know, as we talked about in the Georgia game, the post game. Yes, they were able to exploit some matchups, but 
the whole point of those matchups is they are exploitable against basically any middle linebacker. So I don't know that, you know, we're, as we're recording this, we're still waiting for Tommy Eichenberg's decision for 2023. It may have come out by the time you listen to this, but I think he's a significant piece if he comes back and what he can mean for this defense. They obviously have some guys that they like, some younger guys they like, CJ Hicks being prominent there. Some other guys like Reed Carrico who came in a couple of years ago and haven't broken through to a, a bigger role yet. But right now, Chambers and Eichenberg are both going to be back in the middle of this defense. And I'm a little bit curious how that dynamic plays out. Do these younger guys push for any kind of share and time? Um, can they overtake somebody? Or are Eichenberg and Chambers going to be locked in for 2023 as the starters, much like they were for the second three quarters of this season? I think you got to not clear space for the young guys, but you've got to allow opportunity for the young guys. So I will be very curious to see how it works out if Eichenberg's back. You know, again, it's one of those things I always say that, you know, because talking to CJ Hicks, it's like he's a will linebacker, just like Steel Chambers and. James Lornitis was an outside linebacker until he wasn't. And then he was a starting middle linebacker. So I, I'll be curious. Like if Eichenberg would go, then do you project? And again, maybe it's happened by now. Probably has by the time you hear this. So I don't want to do what ifs. But I, I hope that there's room for CJ Hicks next year if he deserves it. And my guess is he will. Because like you've got to do that, and that's nothing against Tommy Eichenberg or Steel Chambers, but if you're going to be a great program, like you've got to you've got to allow for young guys to play when they're young and dynamic, and you can't be like, oh, oh, we waited like C.J. Hicks, oh, he he played as a third year guy, and then he went to the NFL. It's like, what are you doing? So I I'm anticipating some C.J. Hicks next year. And he is on. I mean, he's on schedule for his own. Um, he's on special teams all year long this year. Um, we don't really know how the two deep was because it doesn't really matter. It was Tommy Eichenberg, Steel Chambers, and then Cody Simon came in. If some one of them needed to come off the field, regardless if it was Mike or Will linebacker, but I agree with that. It's, but whether it's CJ Hicks, I mean, Reed Carrico is going to be a third year guy at this point as a former top 100 recruit. This is kind of a now or never situation for him. Gabe Powers is entering year two, but like CJ Hicks is just like the poster child for you've got a dude who might be super dynamic. Regardless of what you have coming back, that guy's got to have every opportunity to kind of force his way onto the field. And we are now expecting. We had this entire preseason discussion of like uh, all these linebackers that they had, and then it was like, they oh, another play. <laughs> right. Oh, it's nice to have nine. You played two and a two and an eighth, and that was it. And we were you lost one to the running back room. <laughs> and we're expecting CJ Hicks to have a normal offseason we weren't sure about that after the opening kickoff of the Michigan game where he smacks knees with uh, uh, Xavier Johnson and is out for and leaves the game and we don't know how bad it is but Doug you got to talk to him at media day and it sounds like he's he was back to normal he was practicing yeah in Georgia and he's expecting I think just to have a normal offseason going into year two yeah he's fine yeah didn't didn't initially think he was fine but he is so I think it was hyperextended is what he said so but nothing nothing long term at all Predicting usage here, and this was a big topic of conversation coming into the year, was exactly how some of these position groups were going to, you know, filter out. And uh, so top two in defensive end snaps, uh, Doug, you and I both predicted Zach Harrison and JT Tuimaloau. Steven, you predicted Tuimaloau and Sawyer. The leader was JT Tuimaloau with 504, Zach Harrison 484, and then a pretty big drop off to Sawyer at 329. So it had become clear over the course of this year, and it was something we were tracking early on, 
And there was some fluctuations early on, but it became very clear over the course of this season that they're two guys that they trusted the most to be the defensive ends, the starting defensive ends, the main defensive ends on this team were Tua Maloau and Harrison. That Jack position is going to be really interesting. I don't know if Jack Sawyer is best suited to play it, at least the way he was talking when uh, we talked to them on Tuesday, no, Wednesday about it. He just didn't. That's going to be interesting now that Zach Harrison is gone. Do Does Jack Sawyer what stay? Wednesday? What Wednesday are you talking about? Uh, like, during uh, Back in, in Atlanta. Yeah. That's like six Wednesdays ago. So, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, don't be like Wednesday. It's like, what are you talking yeah, about? Right. We talk- when we were down in Atlanta talking to the, def- the defensive starters on Wednesday. Yeah, you're right. That's, it's been a long <laughs> couple of weeks here. Um, but I, I do wonder if, like, does he go back to be more of a traditional defensive end now that Zach Sawyer is uh, – Zach Harrison is gone and maybe you can work in some other guys at Jack. But it just felt like Jack Sawyer was – trying to learn a new position while also trying to develop as a defensive end while also Zach Harrison and JT just established themselves as their best two edge rushers all season. And against the physical teams at the end of the year, real drop-off for Jack Sawyer. His two lowest mm-hmm. snap counts were against Michigan and Georgia. He was in the 20s or 30s for every game until Michigan and Georgia when he had 15 and 16 snaps. So that's just stylistic. Nathan, and again, we thought, oh, maybe the Jack is going to be a thing against Running teams is like, no, that was not it. I certainly would not use the word disappointing, but down to down, quarter to quarter, game to game, Jack Sawyer did not make the kind of impact I anticipated this season. And I think it is more about the Jack position and the evolution or sort of lack of evolution of that position. And also that he had two typical defensive ends ahead of him. But there weren't a ton of times where it was like, oh, there was a play by Jack Sawyer, right? I don't know. That didn't. I thought maybe that as the third guy, because again, Nathan, you and I both picked him to be the third guy, but I thought it might be like a third guy who, when he's in there, is really impactful. And I don't think that's how I would describe how it went down. No, I think he's a guy that is is under a little bit of scrutiny going into this third year just because the expectations were so high. And he and JT Tumaloa were a little bit of a package deal coming in not that they committed as a package deal but like we they were thought of as a duo right like they came in together this is a, du- a combination a, com- a defensive end combo coming in to- to- together and really <clears throat> from the beginning even though to him got her so much later he has just jumped right in the fire and been a bigger part of this defense now for two full seasons than Sawyer has so I think Steven might be onto something that like, was he the best available guy for the Jack this past season? And is he the guy who should be playing it next season? Could be two very different questions. But both of the people who were playing that primarily, uh, Jack Sawyer and Javante Jean-Baptiste, who was fourth in defensive end snaps and is now transferring to play his final season of eligibility. Like, both the Jack guys would then be gone in that sense in, in, if, if you're just making Sawyer a quote-unquote normal defensive end again. So... Now you're maybe starting that process completely over with, with someone new and having to teach them things that, that Jim Knowles said never completely got there with Jack Sawyer this past year. So I, that's one of the things I'm going to be watching this spring is just how are they using Jack Sawyer? Are they letting him maybe go back to being just a regular defensive end, for lack of a better term, and just be an edge rusher who's out there consistently doing that? Because I think JT Tumaloa is rarely going to come off the field. 
Like, you know, his his snap count's still going to be huge because I think they look at him as maybe being the best all-around defensive player, not just on this team, but someone who can contend to be the best all-around defensive player in the Big Ten. Yeah, I wonder if there might be some depth at edge next year. So maybe you try a guy like Caden Curry at that jack position now that he's got a year under his belt. Kenyatta Jackson maybe, you know, takes a step this year. Amari Abor, a fully healthy Amari Abor, has a a full uh, spring to get some things done as well. So maybe there's more depth to try some other guys with that position, but yeah, I agree. Next year, JT's probably not coming off the field, and it is more just do they let Jack Sawyer be the thing they recruited him to be in the first place, and that's a pass. Because he's really good at pass rushing. It's just a lot of that other stuff doesn't feel like it's developed as much because he was spending all, some of that time learning a new position. Let's actually – Also, s- they're going to need him to step up. Yeah, I want to I stay on this theme. Uh, we predicted the sacks leader. It would be who and how many. Both and the top returning guy was Tyleek Williams. Uh, I predicted, uh, oh, I'm sorry, JT Tumaloao had 3.5 and Jack Sawyer 3.0 back in 2021. So we all predicted Jack Sawyer to lead this team in sacks. Doug said seven, I said seven and a half, Steven said eight. And we were partially right to pick him because he did. He and Mike Hall shared the lead in sacks with four and a half each. So that is where, again, I think we. I don't look at seven to eight and we, we talked a little bit about how, you know, double digit sacks is actually kind of a lot. If you can get someone with like eight sacks, that's a really good year in college football. You're maybe only playing 12 or 13 games. So like to predict seven or eight was a good number, but not like an outrageous number, not like, you know, 5,400 yards and 2000 receiving yards and the other things that we were predicting. So I think that's where it feels a little bit underwhelming, right? That to get to, to have another year where Ohio State sack leader, whoever it was, is still not even cracking five sacks, and now it's been a couple years. The clock is a little bit ticking on that. Like, where is that edge rush impact coming from? And I know that it's also tied in to better coverage, but I I also think as much as we've pointed out that like, oh, Chase Young had Jeff Okuda and Damon Arnett, he also had the crazy skills that he had and was able to go out and utilize them. And that's, they haven't had that impact. Not that you're looking for a chase young impact every year, but like there, I think it's fair to say there still needs to be more that's just generated from the line than to expect it to, 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 to top out with what would be there from that, that yin and yang with the coverage too. Yeah, it, it needs to, they, they need more impact there. I mean, you know, you go back and, and there have been plenty of years where they haven't had a guy with 10 sacks. You know, there's a year where like an 18 Chase Young led him with nine and a half. You know, I think the one year Nick Bosa, the best year Nick Bosa had here, he had eight and a half sacks, right? Mm-hmm. 17. I mean, it's not like every great defensive end comes in here and puts up 12 or 15 sacks. So that doesn't have to be the expectation. But I, I just think in general, from the standpoint of how often are their defensive ends just beating tackles and getting to the passer. I think it needs to happen more. And so, and and sometimes I think like you can put too much on sacks, but then I think you can also put too little on sacks because we've had plenty of conversations here of like close is nice. Pressures are nice, but sometimes you got to get the guy down. So it's second and 19, you know, Oh, you got closed and then he threw it away. So it was only second and 10. It's not the same. So I, they need to be better. I think they need to – this was not good enough in that regard. But even in those years where Nick Bosa had like eight, eight and a half, Sam Hubbard had like six or seven, Jalen Holmes had like six or seven, there's years with like Taekwon Lewis would have like – they'd have multiple guys with five, six, seven sacks. And so it makes up for the fact that you don't have a 10-sack guy. 
the fact that the high is four and a half, if the high was seven and a half and it was Jack Sawyer was seven and a half, Mike Hall had seven, you know, JT had five, Zach Harrison had six, then maybe you'd feel a little bit better about it. But your high can't be four and a half. Yeah, I actually wrote at one point this year that some of the sack numbers were misleading. It looked like Ohio State was averaging much less sacks, but actually the sack rate was pretty good historically for them. And comparing to other playoff teams, I should go back and revisit that and see where it finished up, I guess, at the end of the year. But I don't think that negates the point that I, you're right. I think this they just have to get home more often. I think the pressures are important and consistent pressure is important, but also so is turning like, second and seven into third and 14 like you've got to be able to do that more often and and give your coverage a, a a better chance to work along those lines so i wanted to skip ahead to the do you want to finish something there doug no go ahead okay. uh we also predicted defensive tackle snaps who'd be the top two in defensive tackle snaps and this was one that was um maybe even tougher to predict just because there was such a a cluster of guys that had flashed a little bit the Doug, you and I both predicted Teron Vincent and Mike Hall to lead in snaps. Steven, you picked uh, Ty Hamilton and Tyleek Williams to lead in snaps. So Teron Vincent was the leader kind of by far, 490 snaps, and was really just locked in there as the the three-tech uh, spot from day one. Ty Hamilton ended up being number two in 306. He ended up starting the, the back half of this season. Mike Hall was third with 266. Tyleek Williams with 248. The the Mike Hall thing is interesting because that number should be higher, we think, because we were told by Jim Knowles and, and kind of by Mike Hall himself that, yes, there were injuries. He was having these shoulder problems. He said, told me both of his shoulders were hurt going into the down the stretch of the season, that it wasn't something that was going to require surgery or anything, but that that was why he didn't play more. Uh, Jim Knowles saying that, like, you know, backing him down to those, you know, 12, 15 snaps a game sometimes, or famously when he had, like, two and a half sacks against Michigan State on eight snaps or whatever it was, like, reducing the number of snaps was it was about, like, getting, um, you know, quality over quantity in terms of his snaps, like getting the most out of however many snaps they could get him on the field for. So I don't think anyone would argue that he was the either second or most impactful defensive tackle the team had. But the strategy became, according to what they say, that backing him off was to try to get more out of him. And I think it was the defense missed him. Like the way he started the year, he was very dynamic. And I think that some of the stuff you saw late in the season when this defense trailed off a little bit, part of it was the competition got tougher. Part of it was because I think they needed my call on the field more. They also said that he was ready to go, and then he played the least amount of snaps of any of the four defensive tackles who played meaningful snaps against Georgia. So right. I, I, there's part of me that is thinking, did we Tyleek Williams this a little bit? Where, yes, Michigan State game happened, so there's two and a half right there. But And then he had one against Notre Dame and again, one against Arkansas State. So it's not like he had these sacks against Michigan and, you know, Wisconsin and stuff like Did we – he is very, very good. But did we jump out the window a little bit too much the same way that we were midway through the year with Talik Williams in 2021, where it's very good in these spurts as a pass rusher, but there are other parts of this, of his game that still vastly needed to develop while also injuries happen. That's not how they talked about him, though. I mean, the way they were talking about him early, you know, that was at a different level. I don't know. 
He played 32 snaps against Penn State and didn't play more than 20 snaps in any game the rest of the year. Yeah. And as you said, 13 against Michigan, 16 against Georgia. I think some of that, I do think clearly they believe he needs to be a more complete player. And that in the end, beyond just the injury, they were playing him a lot like Jack Sawyer. like they're playing him as a pass rusher. They mm-hmm. weren't playing him like an every down defensive tackle. And that, even though I think we all think he's good at pass rushing, I, I was surprised that they didn't play him more on normal first and second downs. And I'm, I mean, I guess they know, but um, I understand Teron Vincent being what he's going to be, but I I just was a little surprised by how that worked out. And Nathan, I don't know. I don't know. It might have been to their detriment. I don't. I don't know. Like it just like snaps in the teens for my call at when it's winning time at the end of the year, just doesn't seem like enough yeah. to me. I don't know. I I thought it was too few I, I and i guess if he's legitimately hurt that's one thing but again like steven says you know he was talking like he was healthy again and that didn't happen that it wasn't reflected in his his snap totals and you know Tyreek williams teammates weren't calling him baby aaron donald like they were, we weren't even hyping him as much as ohio that's state true. was hyping him and to some extent and they they he was playing and, and he was doing those things early on not the way Tyreek Williams did it in like mop up time, garbage time at the end of games. Like he was making the impactful first string plays on defense in some of those games. And so I just, man, it's, it was there early and it couldn't be sustained. And maybe it is just as normal as an injury. Maybe it is that he, they see things on film that he's so deficient from a run stopping standpoint that, that Ty Hamilton had to play and, and be the one who played more snaps I don't know, but it sure seemed like something was missing over the last half of the year when he wasn't out there. Uh, predicting Ohio State's interceptions leader, that's always a real dart throw. Uh, Ohio State had not had a player over three interceptions since Damon Webb in 2017. And those uh, Oklahoma State defense also did not necessarily get a bunch of interceptions, so we weren't predicting anything outlandish here. But I, I we, we didn't actually predict who would do it. We just said interceptions leader over under 3.5. We all picked under. We were all correct. Tanner McAllister had three interceptions to lead this team in 2022. And now he's moving on to the NFL, a guy who I think was not, you know, I think he gave what we thought Austin would kind of get out of him. Right. Like not necessarily a high ceiling performance, but a steady performance. And then actually based on some of the things that we saw from guys that they tried to play behind him, um, probably warranted that he was the guy that was out there for a reason. I think the more weird stuff, I mean, interception stats are already weird, but not a single cornerback had an interception this year. And then second on this list is JT and also Zach Harrison's tied for fourth. <laughs> yeah. With one though, right? I mean, I like, know, but it's like one. I don't well, even, Steel, it's just, Steel Chambers had two also. Yeah. Yeah. I, again, I think interceptions can be overrated as well, but like no interceptions for the corners is a little odd. That is a little, that is a little odd. And I do think like Tanner, Tanner McAllister, I think was fine. He was good. You know, like it, for a guy who understood the defense, I think it was good for them to have a guy who helped teach the defense and that kind of thing. And I don't think he, you know, I don't think he made many mistakes, which is good. So, but I, you know, I do think like kind of like in general, you know, like their their standard of ceiling, I think in the secondary should still be higher than that. You know, like this was a guy who was 
a complete total football player. But, you know, I'd like to see three Sunny Styles out there at safety. And I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to want or expect to set some degree out of this defense. Well, you're going to see one Sunny Styles out there. That's a... Yeah, I think think one That's one would be a good a start. Defense, <laughs> one Sunny Styles out there would be a good start, and I'm pretty sure you will see that in 2023 in abundance. So all of those defensive things culminated in our last one, which was over under the defense allowing 5.0 yards per play or more. Uh, 2021, they ranked um, 2021 to average five yards per play. I think would have been 25th in the nation. Um, they averaged 5.11 yards per play in 2021, but we thought getting under under five would be a real indication of where this defense had progressed. I predicted that they would be over 5.0, but it would be close. Doug and Steven both predicted under 5.0. Did you guys look up where they actually finished? I'm looking it up right now. So it was... But I don't know yet. It was 4.88 when I first did these stats which would have been after, before the first time we did the last episode. So I think that was coming out of the Michigan game. So it was out of the regular season. They were 4.88 yards allowed per play, which was 15th in the nation. And it's actually where Georgia ended up, by the way, if that gives you some indication of, of things. After the Georgia game, 5.18 yards per game, which ranks 37th nationally. And probably if they had stayed at 4.88, they would have won the national championship. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. that 5.18 is also tied with Rutgers for eighth in the Big Ten, which means that if you said you did this after the Michigan game the first time, which means that number was even dramatically lower than that before the Michigan game. Yeah. Because those were the two, like, big yardage games that they had this year. Yeah. So a substantial difference over the, the last couple of games. Um, and I, it – I wrote, I wrote about this for the site too, but just like trying to put some perspective on what was improvement for this defense this year. And that number is not better than what they averaged per play in 2021. Yeah. I mean, Georgia affects that, but yeah. And you look at like big plays, they gave up 52 plays of 20 yards or more this year. They gave up 53 last year. So that was... Not that much improved either. Yeah. So I don't know. I think we have a whole offseason to really dissect this defense. Again, I think when we did the defense pod after the Georgia game, it was like, okay, when you rewatch it, it's not as bad as you thought when you were coming out of that game. But for what the standard is, right? And it's one of these things. I think we just need to create a standard that's beyond statistical. It's like a, a championship standard for a certain style of team, right? And like you said, Nathan, when you even look, it's like, oh, well, Georgia, oh, they have the best defense, but they're 15th in the nation in yards per per play allowed, right? So it's not really about being in the top 10 in this particular statistic, but it's about being a championship-level defense. And I think that, however, I guess maybe, Nathan, you came up with that idea of like 5.0 yards per play. It seemed like a reasonable number. And the idea that they were better than it in the regular season – and then after they lost in the playoff, they were worse than it. Probably sounds about right. Like I think what that's 
almost the shorthand for the story of this defense that for most of the time, and as you said, Stephen, they were even better after mm-hmm. 11 games before Michigan for most of the time, like for the first 11 games. Yeah, no, it was good enough. And then when they got to winning time against the other best teams in the country, it wasn't good enough. It wasn't God awful, but it wasn't good enough. And so that's what they'll carry, I think, into the offseason. I think I think almost everybody would agree with that. I think Jim Knowles and Ryan Day would agree with that characterization. Better than the year before. Pretty good most of the year. Not quite good enough when it really mattered. I just, uh, just want to say, I, I misspoke one thing. It was 5.33 last year. So it was a very slight improvement over last year. Not worse than last year. But also well off of the yeah. pace. Like As recently as 2019, they were 4.13. So you're talking about a defense that was it's over a yard per off of that peak. And while I think the 2019 performance is incredibly hard to replicate in by both uh, defensive talent and the schedule that they happened to play that year, uh, that is too far off of that standard that they've got to push something back towards that standard to to be able to make the difference in games like the one they just played. Yeah, there's a middle ground between one of the best defenses of the last 20 years and what we've seen in the years since then that I need to find. And it's just, I don't know how much of that is. I mean, you've changed the coaching staff at this point, so they're not going to do that again. And the scheme, at least it seemed to work for the first 11 weeks of the season. So now we're down to the other one-third of this equation. That's personnel. And that just means, Doug kind of said it, I would like to see three Sunny Styles back there. That's a big ass because Sonny Styles might just be unique on his own standpoint, but just the, the, the overall just improvement in play has to be there as well. And from a talent standpoint, just guys playing better because the, the scheme and the coaching staff, they spent $2 million and plus others on what they're making fixing that a year ago. So now it's kind of on, can we just see better play and, you know, more talent, especially in that back end where a lot of the issues were. Well said. So I think that's it. Unless somebody else, do we want to make any very, very, very early predictions for 2023 or are we going to save those for the market on Mondays? We crank out towards the season. Anybody, anybody got a flyer they want to take? No, it's, we, we got to let this shake out a little bit. I, I am curious about some of the guys like defensively, when you think about the people they have back, because they have a lot of people back, Right. It's yeah, very do, yeah. yeah, it's it's a very similar situation, I think, especially defensively a little bit to they had a lot of, they had some decent amount of people come back from twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one in the secondary, and it became the situation of well that didn't work, so do you really want to run that back versus trying new guys? Yeah, I, I'm very interested how not just Sonny Styles and CJ Hicks, but Caden Curry and Kenyatta Jackson and Jair Brown. And like, mm-hmm. there's just some other guys of, I, I wonder, you know, cause you've always, just cause you're back doesn't mean you're going to play the same role. So I'm curious how this will shake out in the spring, because I think, you know, this was a, there are some players, there were some guys who had some excellent years on this defense this year, but one through 11, one through 11 down to down, is it the talent level that you expect at Ohio State? The production level you expect at Ohio State? Beyond the scheme? The individual player? Like Steven said, you don't have to have the standard be 2019. But 
I think it's not there yet. So how do you get there? I mean, there's just maybe, maybe guys play even better or maybe some other guys play. But it was weird because it felt better. Like during the course of this year, I thought it felt better. And then when you look at it in retrospect, I think the schedule explains some of that. And But I also think that it didn't, they didn't sustain it. Like it, it definitely trailed off in the moments they needed it the most late in the year. Yeah, it felt better until they started playing competent teams. And then all of a sudden they kind of like – even the Penn State game wasn't good. The offense just – I mean, JT just had one of the greatest games ever and the offense started clicking randomly in the third quarter. But it wasn't – Penn State, Michigan, and Georgia were probably the three best teams they played in terms of, you know, offense, defense, and special teams. And the defense gave up 30-plus points in each of those games and it didn't look pretty for a large portion of those games. So that's why I more judge their season off of those three games than the other, you know, 10 they played where a lot of those games, well, yeah, you're just better than them. You're going to do this. Especially when one of those games is Michigan State who was incompetent and then Iowa and whatever that was they were playing doing on offense. They held their first 10 opponents below what those teams averaged per play for the season. Then Maryland went over it slightly and then Michigan and Georgia blew their season averages out of the water. And you're right. I mean, that's what defines the defensive season ultimately and something that they're going to have to chase a, a solution for in the coming months. So we'll be back in the coming months. We'll be doing our new market down Mondays as we get closer to the season. This will be the last Buckeye talk for one calendar week, as Doug told you earlier. So a little break for us, unless unless there's something, it basically have to be warrant a an emergency pod, right? Is what you're saying, Doug? Like we'll, We'll we'll come out of the back cave if, if it's really warranted in this next week. But otherwise, take a break. We'll take a little break, and we will be back at you next week with a lot more of uh, what you've come to know and love. For Stephen Means, for Doug Lamer East, I'm Nathan Baird, and that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>